0: Sermon this afternoon is from Mr. Reg Nolan. It is entitled Satan's Fate and the Nature of God. Okay. Um, last Feast of Tabernacles, I attended the feast here with the Christian Biblical Church of God and heard Fred Coulter's message for the sixth day, and it really bothered me. The more I thought about it, the more it just was uneasy with me. So I started to research it and find out what was going on. By the way, I mean no disrespect when I refer to him as Fred in in the passages, for anyone who knows him knows that he doesn't like the customary term Mr. In fact, he'll get very upset with you if you call him Mr. Coulter. Uh, Indeed, I have great respect for Fred and for his teaching and all that he has shared with the churches of God over the ages. However, it's not the first time I've disagreed with him. It's not the first time. I've disagreed with him over the traditional line messages that he gives over uh, Day of Atonement and the interpretation thereof, over the probable date of Jesus' birth, among other things. This particular disagreement for the sixth day of uh, the Feast of Tabernacle dealt with Satan's fate and what it implies about the nature of God. Now, I understand his position understand where he's coming from. His position seems to be that, uh, that Satan is to be cast into the lake of fire and tormented for all eternity. And I understand where he derives this view. It's from a very narrow reading of Revelation 20, verse 10. Let's read up to it. So start in uh, Revelation 21 through 3, then we'll skip to 7 through 10. And I saw the angel came down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old servant, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, that he should deceive the nations no more, until the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed a little season. All right, skip down to verse 7 now. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. And shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to, to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up to the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them, devoured them. And the devil... That deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. R should be technically read as were cast, um, and shall be tormented day and night forever and forever. On first reading, it sounds as though God is going to torment Satan forever and ever throughout all of eternity. But I do believe that this traditional interpretation that Fred espoused is wrong. And it is inconsistent with other scriptures and with the nature of God. Since John 10.35 guarantees that the scriptures cannot be broken, then we must find a way to reconcile this apparent contradiction. Laying down, as Isaiah said, precept on precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little, until we discover the truth. Okay, so this is the... In order to understand Satan's fate... We must know something about his origin and history. Here's what we know. We know that Satan is a created angelic being who did not exist at the beginning of time, but came into existence somewhere between the original creation and the Garden of Eden, where he's alive and well to tempt uh, Adam and Eve. How do I know that? Well, let's go to John 1. John 1 tells us that at the beginning there existed only or exactly two God beings. God, the essence of all, the Father, and the Word, the creative power of the universe, who is the creator and the sustainer of all. All that is created was created by them, including the cosmos and the angels. Let's read about this a wonderful affirmation of the divine dyad in John 1, verses 1 through 14. We know this. In the beginning was the Word, that's the Greek word logos, by the way, And the word was with God. That God, that use of the word God here, is a proper noun. That is Yahweh. That is Jehovah. That is the great I Am, as we just sang about. And the word was God. That use of the word God, that use of the word God is the Elohim, which is a kind of being, a spiritual being. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. He's the only one that has life inherent. And life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. That was the true light that lighteth every man that comes into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word was made flesh, the Logos was made flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, in the beginning, we find only, only these two God beings, the Father and the Word, with life inherent. We just sang a song about the great I Am. To be the great I Am means self-existent that he has life inherent. He existed for all time. Please note that there is not an angel in sight anywhere at this time. No angels in sight, nor is there any kind of sentient being like the Holy Spirit in a personified form. The Holy Spirit emanates from these two beings, but he's not a separate being at all. There is no evidence at all from John 1 that there was any other being than the Father and the Word. These alone, these God beings alone have immortality, as Paul tells in his letter to Timothy. Go to 1 Timothy 6, verses 13 through 16. I charge you before God, who makes all things alive. Again, he has the life inherent. And in the sight of Christ, Jesus, who witnesses the great confession to Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without spot and without blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he in his own time will reveal who is the blessed and only pontinate, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Who alone has immortality? Notice that. He alone has immortality. No one else. Not us, not angelic beings, not Satan, not anyone. Okay? Uh, dwelling in light, which cannot be approached, whom no one of man hath seen nor can see, to whom the honor and power and everlasting amen. Throughout Revelation, we see them referred to. Uh, the great I am, the, the, the he who was and is and is to come, go to Revelation 1.8. This is typical of the kind of references. We see these kind of references scattered throughout the book of Revelation. Revelation 1.8 says, He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. That's the description of God. The beginning and the end, the self-existent one, Why am I emphasizing this so much? Because all that was created was created by them, including the cosmos, the angelic hosts, and Lucifer, who became Satan. Sometime before the creation of human man, but after the creation of the universe, there was a great war in heaven. Lucifer became proud and wanted to be like the Most High God. He rebelled against God's authority and persuaded a third of the angelic beings to join him in the rebellion. God crushed Satan's rebellion and cast him and his demonic followers to earth. Now, all the creation, now all of this, the, the creation, the revolt, the war, the banishment, all of this occurred prior to the creation of man. Because when we first meet Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we find Satan already cast down to earth. Further, we know from the exchanges in, in Job 2 that Satan still had access to the throne of God while there were men on earth. So he still has some access there. Moreover, scripture records two flashbacks in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, which will be my key scriptures for this passage, where God reflects on Satan's magnificence, his pride, his sin, his insurrection, and the resulting chaos that ensues. Look at Ezekiel 28. It begins as a lament for the king of Tyre, and obviously becomes a lament not for any human being, but for Lucifer, from the tone and language that we see used, that's a being that God must have loved once upon a time. Let's go to it. Let's read Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 19. Son of man, lift up a lament over the king of Tyre, and say to him, so says the Lord Jehovah, you shall seal the measure full, you seal the measure full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You have been in Eden. Uh-oh, what just happened? We jumped from the king of Tyre, to something that was present in the Garden of Eden. That's not a human being. That has to be then a reference to Satan. So we have made the shift from the King of Tyre into a lament over Satan instead. Or Lucifer, I should say. You have been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the turquoise, and the emerald, and gold. The workmanship of your tambourines and your flutes was prepared in you in the day that you were created. Notice, created. So he was a created being. And you were the anointed cherub that covers, right on the very throne of God. And I had put you in the holy height of God where you were, You have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. You were perfect in your days from the day that you were created until iniquity was found in you. By the multitude of your goods, they have filled your midst with violence, and you have sinned. Satan sinned. So I cast you profane from the height of God, and I destroy you, O covering cherub from uh, from among the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You have spoiled your wisdom because of your brightness. I will cast you to the ground. I will put you before kings that they may behold you. By the host of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trade, you have profaned your holy places. So I brought a fire out of your midst. It shall devour you. And I will give you for ashes on the earth before the eyes of all who see you. And all who know among the people shall be astonished at you, and you shall be terrors, and will not be forever. And will not be, will not be forever. In other words, he does not have immortality. We see a similar lament in Isaiah 14. These are known as the five fatal I wills. Isaiah 14, verses 11 through 15. How thou art fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. So this is a direct lament for Lucifer. Oh, how thou art fallen, O O Lucifer, son of the morning. How thou art cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nation. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into the heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Stars usually refers to angels, but not always. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend to the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell. That means grave, the pit, uh, the, to the sides of the pit. Okay. Please note the passages, the, that these passages answer that age-old question. Did God create a devil? Well, yes and no. He created Lucifer, a nearly perfect angelic being, and gave him the free will to choose whether or not to obey God, as did so many other angels. But... Lucifer became Satan, became the devil of his own free will when he sinned, When his sin made him anathema to God. So, yes and no. Did God create a devil? He created Lucifer, but he did not create the devil. The, Lucifer became the devil when he chose of his own free will to sin. We later learn three other very important pieces of information from these passages. First, Lucifer sinned. That's in Ezekiel 28.16. And became Satan due to the iniquity that was found in him. We also learn his fate is for him to be destroyed, to be devoured by fire from within him to into ashes. That's Ezekiel 28.18. Like a self-destruct mechanism to be brought down to the grave, to the sides of the pit, to, uh, pit that he will not be, he will not exist forever. That's Ezekiel 28.19. These concepts are much more consistent with biblical principles. In particular, John, um, 1 John 3, 4. This is the definition of sin. Anyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. For sin is lawlessness. And the King James Version says, Anyone who commits sins transgresses the law, and for sin is the transgression of the law. I like the uh, modern King James Version better because it emphasizes the lawlessness of this whole thing. And Romans 6.23, we all also know, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now put these two pieces together, and please note that there is no stipulation that says in, in, that Romans 26:23 applies only to human beings. Rather, it implies to anyone who sins, any being that sins, including the angelic beings. So the wages of sin is death. It's Lucifer's sin. Therefore, Lucifer dies. Can it be any clearer? That's basic logic. Contrary to the Catholic Protestant view, death is not torment for all eternity. Rather, it is extinction, complete annihilation for all time, once and forever, for both us and for the angelic beings. We human beings, however, have the ability to repent and to be redeemed by the blood of Christ. That's our saving grace. That's our saving grace. Angels, however, don't seem to have the ability to repent. Once they make a choice, it seems to become part of their programming. It becomes part of their personality, part of their character, so they cannot repent. The rest of the story. Let's continue our prehistory lesson. Scientists estimate that the Big Bang to have, to have occurred about 14 and a half billion years ago. So we have a starting point for creation. But creation is an ongoing process. God is still creating stuff today. In particular, he is creating children after his kind in us. But the creation of God children cannot be accomplished instantaneously by fiat, by saying, you are a God child. Poof. Immediately they come. If we did that, we we would be little more than automatons, little more than robots, androids or the like. Rather, creating God children requires the development of godly character. Learn through free choice over time, hence our mortal existence. That's why we have a mortal existence, during which we learn to love, to choose the good, and learn to choose God. We were created mortal for a reason. God alone has immortality, has life inherent. All others can, be, can die or be destroyed, including the angelic beings. Yet some people want to argue that angelic beings are immortal and cannot die. Apparently that's Fred's view. I don't know for sure. So that once created, God is stuck with them for all eternity. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? I must ask. Do you really think that our Creator God, who sees the end from the beginning, would have been so short-sighted as not to anticipate the possibility of rebellion if beings were given free will, and not to make any kind of provision for such a possibility? Do you really think that He would have created something that He could not destroy if the need arose? Even we mortal human beings can see that such a plan would have been foolish. How much more so with an all-wise God who sees the end from the beginning. Personally, I think God is smarter than that. I think God is smarter than that. While it may be true that angelic beings do not die of natural causes from disease or decay, that does not mean that they cannot be destroyed, completely wiped out of existence by an all-powerful God that brought them into existence. I'm reminded of the Texas father who looked at his son and said, Son, I brought you into this world. I would take you out. Okay, it, t- it takes much more creativity, imagination, energy, effort to bring something into being than it takes to destroy it. It takes a brilliant architect and contractor to design and construct a building. But any fool with a can of gasoline and a box of matches can destroy it. It doesn't take a genius to destroy something. Do you really think that God could not destroy Satan? Scripture begs to differ. God had a plan for such contingencies. In fact, the fate, the fate of Satan and his angels was prepared from the beginning of time, and they know their fate, though Satan may try to deny it. James 2, 19. Thou believest there is one God, and thou dost well. The devil also believe, and they tremble. Of course they tremble. They know their fate. Complete annihilation. Matthew warns, and fear, Matthew 10, 28, and fear not them which kill the body, which are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear he who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Hell is the grave, and here it's a metaphor for death. Second Peter 2, 4, for God did not spare sinning angels, but thrust them down into Tartarus, by the way. Tartarus. This is the this is translated as hell in the original King James version. It's the only time this word is used in the entire uh, uh, New Testament. It means a place of constraint. Okay, Tartarus and cast them down to where am I? Tartarus and deliver them into chains of darkness, being reserved unto judgment. Reserved unto judgment. That's not their final habitation. That is like a holding cell. Jude 6. Jude only has one chapter. Uh, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains unto darkness, unto the judgment of the great day. Okay. Um, The... These rebellious angels are waiting in bondage, awaiting the day of judgment, and they know they shall be destroyed. How do I know they know? We get a testimony from from demons themselves. Look at Mark 1, verses 23 and 24. This is a situation where uh, Christ approached the man with demons. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know who thou art, the Holy One of God. See, they already know what their fate is. They know they're going to be destroyed. They recognize Christ as the God that can destroy them. The Holy One of Israel. Matthew 25, 41. And he said to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice, this is not something that's just a contingency plan. This is something that was prepared well in advance, from the beginning of time. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he referring now to Jesus, he also himself likewise partook of the same, and through death that he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Again, notice that Christ has the power not just to torment and put away forever, but to destroy the devil completely. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 7 through 10. The mystery of lawlessness. That is a mystery, isn't it? Lawlessness. Why would anyone in their right mind choose willingly to disobey God when they know the outcome? That's a mystery. That really is a mystery. The mystery of lawlessness is already working. Only he who now holding back only he is now holding back until it comes out of the mist. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the breath of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, whose coming is in accordance with the works of Satan, with all the power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceit of unrighteousness in those who perish, because they did not receive the love of truth, so that they might be saved. Here's an overt, overt statement of Satan's true fate. Ezekiel 28, again, we'll go back to this one. As I said, this is my key uh, passage, but I'm using here um, the modern King James Version. Okay. Ezekiel 28, 16-19. By the multitude of your goods, they have filled your midst with violence, and you have sinned. So I cast you profaned. From the heights of God. And I destroy you, O coming, O covering cherub, from among the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You have spoiled your wisdom because of your brightness. I cast you to the ground. I will put you before kings that they may behold you. By the host of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trade, you have profaned your holy places. So I brought a fire from your midst. Again it's like there's a self destruct mechanism already embedded in Satan, and God brings it out. It shall devour you, and I will give you for ashes burn up burnt to ashes on the earth, before the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among people shall be astonished at you, and you shall be terrors, and you will not be forever. First John three, eight he that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. There are two issues that arise from the scriptures that I've just read. What does it mean to destroy something? And what is eternal or everlasting fire? To destroy something means to cause it to cease to exist entirely. To vanquish completely. Uh, do not, so that not even the memory of it exists. The Greek word that is translated as destroy is cartagio, Strong's uh, 2673. It comes from the root kata, which means down, and argio, which means to be idle, which comes from argus, which means inactive, unemployed, or useful. It means to render um, entirely idle, useless. Abolish, cease, destroy, do away, become or make of no effect, fail, bring or come to naught, vanish away, make void. So, to destroy something means to obliterate entirely. To obliterate entirely. Everlasting or eternal fire is a little bit more complex. There's a mistranslation of the Greek word uh, aeonian, which means age-lasting. Everlasting is a mistranslation. The word in the Greek is aeonian, which is age-lasting. Age-lasting. Lasts only till the end of the age. We know from experience and from science that fire does not burn forever. Rather, uh, the existence of fire depends upon the combustion triad. Right, Ken? The combustion triad. Fuel, oxygen, and heat source. If any one of those three are missing, the fire goes out. The fire goes out. Even a California wildfire will burn itself out once it's consumed all the available fuel. So, this age-lasting fire will burn until the end of the era when it will have consumed all evil things, including Satan, the beast, the false prophet, the false fallen angels, unrepentant sinners, and the works of the devil. But it will eventually go out when it has consumed all of its fuel. Now, some may argue and say that Satan and demons are spirit beings and are not subject to be burnt up. Do we really know that? Do we really know that? Normal fire is a very rapid oxidation of the fuel source. But there are plasma fires that produce exothermic reactions so intense that they actually burn at the at subatomic level. Now, I'm sure that God could create a fire hot enough to incinerate spirit as well. It's not limited to just the fuel that we need. Indeed, all the images of Satan's fate show him reduced to ashes, consumed by a fire that begins from within him and devours him. Let's look again at Ezekiel 28, 18, this time in the Moffat translation. The Moffat translation is a little different, but it's more, I think it's clear of what's going to happen. By the greatness of your guilt, by the crimes of your commerce, you have profaned your sacred position. Therefore, I have I made you set fire to yourself with flames that consume you and reduce you to ashes on earth. In the sight of all who behold you, and, and who know you among the nations shall be appalled at you. All who know you among the nations shall be appalled at you. Your fate is awful. There is no future for you. That's Ezekiel 28, 18, 19 in the Moffat translation. Here's a very, this is a very clear prophecy of the coming fate of Satan, the devil. What could be more clear? He will be turned into ashes. He will be consumed by fire. He will exist no more. He will exist no more. To us science fiction fans, this sounds like the auto-destruct mechanism in a, a starship or whatever. Installed deliberately to destroy the host once it has outlasted its usefulness. The apostle uh, Peter writes, Second uh, Peter 3, 7-13. through 13, but the heaven and the earth, which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. By the way, the word perdition, is an old King James word, it means utter destruction. But uh, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. That one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as someone would count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come through repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works thereof, including the devil and his demons, shall be burnt up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what matter of person ought ye be in all your holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of the Lord, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Yet some would say, again, that Satan will not be destroyed. This is the view I got from the feast this year. Uh, we'll, we'll, but will be bound in chains of bondage and constrained to becoming, quote, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness and darkness forever. That's Jude 13. Uh, far away from the presence of God. Now, if we look at this passage a little bit more closely, we can dis- dismiss it without w- warrant uh, or uh, much concern. Because... Jude here is not referring to any kind of angelic being. He's talking about human beings who float around from feast site to feast site trying to disrupt everyone. Here he's referring to twice dead human, not angelic or demon, parasites on their feet, wandering from site to site, stirring up discord. Okay, so what are the implications of this? If it were so, that Satan and his demons uh, could be banished to wander the darkness of space for all eternity, what would that say about the nature of God? What would that say about the nature of God? After the establishment of the kingdom of God, why would God need Satan anymore? Why would he need him? And if God doesn't need him, then why keep him around for all eternity? For punishment? That doesn't make good sense. Vengeful, torturous punishment is not the nature of God. Rather, God is, as the scripture just told us, long-suffering, merciful, forgiving if there's any hope of redemption at all. And he's swift to destroy if there is no hope of repentance possible. He is not some grand inquisitor, not Tomas de Torquemada, um, who spearheaded the Spanish Inquisition. He is a human. This, this idea of punishment, of retribution, of, venge, uh, re, of vengeance is a human Catholic mindset, not a divine one. We learn a lot about, our, uh, about the victors from how they treat the defeated. What would it say about God if he were to torture Satan for all eternity for his misdeeds for a finite amount of time, even if that finite amount of time is 14.5 billion years? any finite amount of time, over infinity, the limit goes to zero. The limit goes to zero. So as eternity marches onward, the impact of Satan will become less and less and less and less. Minuscule in comparison to eternity. It is more in keeping with the nature of God that he would simply destroy Satan as scripture indicates, after his usefulness is expended and his nature clearly becomes unredeemable. It is a more realistic portrait of the merciful and just God who clearly had affection for Lucifer before his insurrection. For God to engage in torture would be petty. So why the myth? So why has this myth of Satan and his... Traditional Protestant Catholic view and his angels and human sinners in the traditional view of churchianity, all being punished for all eternity. Why is that persisted throughout time? Who benefits from such a myth? Who benefits from the portrayal of God as a grand inquisitor? Truly, as the author of sin and the unrepentant and one unrepentant of his evil, Satan is worthy of punishment. And from a human point of view, we have no doubt about that. People who do bad things we feel as human beings need to be punished. But we need to be careful here. We must be careful not to project our human values onto God. God's solution is much simpler. Remove the cause. Get rid of it. Utterly destroying it. We certainly don't benefit from Satan being punished. God doesn't benefit from being portrayed as some grand inquisitor. Ironically, in a Twisted sort of sense of the word benefit. The only person, the only being to benefit from the myth of Satan being tormented for all eternity is Satan himself. For this myth would make Satan immortal. incapable of dying. Like God, which he always wanted to be, but which he is not. Further, it paints God as a cruel torturer, which he is not, therefore eliciting sympathy for the devil, to borrow Mick Jagger's phrase. It is designed to confuse us emotional, easily persuaded human beings and to distort our image of our loving, long-suffering God into some kind of uh, grand inquisitor. Don't fall for the devil's shell game. It's just one more ruse in his bag of deceit.